Good to see all of you. Would you open your copy of God's Word, electronic or analog or otherwise, uh, to the book of James? We're continuing our series uh, that we have entitled Get Wise. Get Wise as we study the idea of what does it mean to live in godly wisdom in the days that God has called us to live in which is today. So we're going to be reading two sections from James chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. I know it might say on your printed notes there, 15, but it's going to be 13 through 16. And then we're going to pick it up again as James repeats themes throughout the book of James. We're going to go and see how he picks up the same theme that he introduced in James 1 in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. We'll see this in so many different ways. For example, when we start talking about how God wants us to live with our speech being holy and a blessing and our tongues being tamed, we're going to see how James brings this theme up over and over again throughout the book of James. So we'll see today that there is a theme that James wants to address and speak, and he does it in such a typical fashion for him by bringing it up in different places and times. So I invite you to turn there. Let me say this. I am so grateful for that beautiful prayer from Gaynell and from all the work for all our volunteers and uh, for Jason and Maggie who led us in such beautiful worship. I was thinking only the Holy Spirit could lead us to have worship that fits so well with today's message. And then I was also thinking that the Holy Spirit blessed Jason with the gift of rhythm because he plays the drum and the guitar at the same time and I can't clap on time. So there are spiritual gifts and there are spiritual gifts, right? Big gifts. So let's go to James chapter 1. I'll begin reading in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin... And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Now, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God resist the devil and he will flee from you and this is God's holy 
inerrant, eternal word. May he add his blessing to its reading and its proclamation. As we think about this idea of godly wisdom, we're always thinking about this idea of what does it mean uh, for us to live in a way that reflects the reality of God's grace and goodness to us in this world. We want to know how to live God's way. To live a wise life is to live the life that God actually created us for. The way, if you, if you want to think about it, the people who've lived in one sense the wisest life were the Adam and Eve before the fall. When there was no corruption of man's reason, no corruption of culture, no corruption of the world around them, they were living in a way that was truly pleasing to God. And then you can see in Scripture that, that God gifted Solomon wisdom when he cried out to God and asked for wisdom. And, and until his heart was led astray by going off into sin and following his idol-worshipping wives, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And was living in a way that was pleasing to God. And today, we're going to see that James, the New Testament book of wisdom, very similar to Proverbs in the Old Testament, James is speaking to us about the theme of sin. Specifically, how do we as believers live in a world that is, that is wrecked by the reality of sin? And we're going to see that James wants us to understand three things. If we're to be truly wise, we need to understand sin's origin, we need to understand sin's outcome, and we need to understand sin's opponent. And we need to not just understand these truths, we need to internalize the way that those things affect us and then what we're to do about it. So let's talk about the idea of sin's origin. Where does sin come from? Well, James wants you to know it doesn't come from God, right? Sin does not come from God. James is not a person who buys into the philosophy that, that God himself is evil, that he does things. He's, he's rejected the Greek mythos and the Roman culture that said the gods were a mixture of good and evil. He would reject strongly contemporary Buddhist and Taoist philosophies uh, that say that there's a yin and a yang in the great reality of the, of the universe. Rather, James wants you to understand the God who created all things at all times in all places and who reigns and who sustains over the universe, that God is not the originator of sin. So James 1.13 James says, let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God will never bring you into a place of temptation. He may allow you to see some realities of yourself. He may allow the enemy to attack you. We're going to talk about the enemy here in just a minute. He may allow your flesh to rise up and withdraw his restraining hand, but God never tempts anyone. Job, a truly wise man, encountering one of his friends, Elihu, hears Elihu say this about the reality of God, a truth that is found throughout the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hear me, you men of understanding. If you have true wisdom, you need to grasp this, right? Far be it from God 
that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. God is infinitely holy, never sins, and never leads you and me into sin. So where does sin come from? If it doesn't come from God, where does it come from? Well, James is going to reveal three places that sin comes from or originates from. It comes from our desires. James spends most of his time talking about this reality. And this is important for us as believers to grasp, even when we're going to talk about some of the other origins here in just a second. Notice that James doesn't start the way so many Christian preachers do. So many Christian preachers will start by talking about the sin that is out there, what we're going to call the world, and then they might emphasize the devil, but James starts much closer to home. He says, if you want to know where sin comes from, look inside yourself. Start Start by looking in the mirror. So he says this, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. There's something in the human want to that is warped and twisted and broken. He goes on to say, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. In other words, if we let the warped and broken desires that are inside us come all the way to fruition, we see sin, right? Another way of saying this is this, what we desire most, long for most, what we believe will give us the most security, significance, or satisfaction, what we might call an idol, that thing we long for most if it's not God, it will always lead us to a place of sin. No matter how good the desire is when it begins, right? So we, James goes on to say that we have conflicting desires within us. So go to James 4.1. He picks the theme up again and he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this... Your passions, and this is another word for desire there, your passions are at war within you. We experience this all the time, don't we? Paul would talk about this in Romans chapter 7 when he says, I want to do good things, but what I find coming out of my mouth and out of my life are things that I don't really want to do or some part of me doesn't want to do, and yet they are sinful things. Anybody feel like this? I, this is me this week, right? And so we have these conflicting desires that are at war within the life of a believer, right? And naturally, without the supernatural transformation of the Holy Spirit, all of us have wrong motives, and that those motives are driven by a pursuit of our own pleasure. So if you go to James 4.3, I love how the Christian Standard Bible translates this because it picks up some, some nuances there. And, it's, and it reads like this, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, this is very interesting because this is not the way we often frame our sins or our failure into sin, right? We say, I had good intentions, but because I am weak or I am less than perfect, hey, everybody, I'm less than perfect, 
Sin came out even though I had good intentions. And James says, don't you get it? Even your intentions are problematic when you have these conflicting desires inside you. You may have wanted to be nice, but truthfully what you wanted more was to be in control of the situation or to win in this circumstance or to get your own way. You wanted that more than you wanted to be nice or kind. Right? You wanted to assert something about yourself and be seen as important or at least protected, and you wanted that more than you wanted to control your tongue, your attitude, or your actions. The problem is we are bags of mixed motives, right? And what's in the middle of those mixed motives is selfishness and self-centeredness. And that what, that's what ends up dominating our behavior, our attitudes, and our thoughts, right? So uh, James is a great illustration in James chapter 3. Uh, one of the places he, he speaks about this, he says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Now, notice what he's saying. He's saying, if you're, if you're looking at somebody else and saying, I, I want what they have, I deserve what they have, that's bitter jealousy. I'm, I, I've worked just as hard as them. I'm just as entitled. I'm just as good as them. How come they have something I don't have? Bitter jealousy. Or selfish ambition, this longing to exert your own significance or security. He says, if you have those things in your hearts, don't, be bo uh, don't boast and be false to the truth. There's something that happens in the human mind and in the human heart that says, I'm looking in the mirror and I'm, I'm good. And James says, you're lying to yourself. If you've got these kinds of passions driving you, don't fool yourself. That's not who you truly are. Our sinful behaviors are often and, and pretty much always the result of the overflow of what's in our hearts. Now, who said that? Jesus, right? That's exactly what Jesus said. Go to Matthew 15. Jesus says there this. He says, out of the heart come evil thoughts. Notice your intuitive, inmost, emotive, spiritual soul being originates bad thinking, not the other way around. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness. Do you hear him going down the second table of the Ten Commandments there? because he is, slander. These things defile a person. They make them dirty. That's why you and I innately feel, unless we have so calloused our consciences, dirty and shameful when we've done things that intuitively we know by nature are displeasing to a holy God. And sinful desires are problematic not only because of the outcomes of them, the behaviors that result, but because of what they lead us to in our relationship with God. 
See, the problem with our sinful desires is that they lead us first to not fear God and then to question whether or not He's there or at least whether or not He's telling us the truth. This is the mechanism Satan uses in the garden to tempt Eve. You will not surely die, he told Eve. You don't need to be afraid of God, right? And you can be like God. You don't need a God over you to tell you what is right and wrong. You can decide, which is the root of so much unbelief, isn't it? And that's the way that our hearts are longing. Those are things our hearts are longing for. We're longing to not be afraid of anything and to be the ultimate arbiter of what is right and wrong and what is true and what is good, and that is unbelief. The psalmist puts it this way. Look at Psalm 36, 1, and the psalmist says, Transgression speaks to the wicked where? Deep in his heart, the place of desire. Brothers and sisters, you live in a world that tells you to follow your heart. The problem with that is your heart wants the wrong things. Unredeemed hearts want the wrong things. Hearts that are not yet fully redeemed often want the wrong things. Transgression speaks deeply into the place of desire and there is no fear of God in that place. A later psalmist, Psalm 53, will say the fool says in his heart, there is no God. God's not present. God's not real. God doesn't see. God doesn't hear. God doesn't arbitrate this situation. If God was here, he would understand me. (laughs) Do you see how quickly all of our desires lead us away from God? Okay, so James says one place of origin is our desires, right? But sin also, James says, comes from the world. Now, what do we mean by the world? Here's the problem that we have with the definition of the world. Too often we decide when the Bible says the world, we mean people who are different from us. The world consists of people who vote differently from me or people from other cultures or people who have other sin problems that I've never particularly been tempted by. That is not the Bible's definition of the world. Okay? It it allows you to escape the first origin of sin. So don't do that. When you read the world in your Bible, and it's talking about the combined nature of or collective nature of sin that is in the world. It's talking about the way that collectively our sinful actions, our sinful desires collectively, our sinful systems combine to rise up and oppose the living God. The problem is that people who vote differently from you, yes, they're sinful, but so are the people who vote like you. The people from your nation are just as wicked as you are and as are other nations. 
It's not those people who have other person's struggles that have the worldliness about them, but those people who are like us. So let me give you some examples of the way this plays out in the church. In the church, in the modern, contemporary, American, evangelical church, we can condemn abortion, rightly, and say the world is off doing abortion, and yet so often abortion is in the church. In fact, it's a reflex reaction of spiritual leaders and men within the church to cover up the sin of immorality. Just ask some of our sexual abuse survivors. The sin that's supposedly out there is in here. Furthermore, it's easy for us to say, don't go have an abortion, and for us to commit a worldly combined sin of not caring for teenage mothers and providing the resources that they need. Does that make sense? Here's another example. The world can condemn, the church, contemporary American evangelical church can condemn homosexuality and yet not acknowledge that every person is broken sexually. And so we focus on somebody else's sin and say that's greater than my sin, than the rampant pornography that's within the evangelical church and the rampant immorality but hey, we can feel good about ourselves. So when we talk about the world, we are talking about the way that sinners group themselves into groups and shape desires and values and systems in order to oppose the living God. And James says in James 4.4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world, and remember, we're not talking about some, some other group, we're talking about the way we get together and sin together collectively, right? Friendship with that world is enmity to God. The world wants to shape our desires and our values and our passions, so John will say this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Today, a really good Christian thinker, uh, attorney, uh, strong religious advocate, uh, David French, has written a piece entitled, the American idolatry of the gun. See, Americans love guns. We love them. And we love a system we've created to protect our right to have guns called the Second Amendment. And folks, it is possible that within the church we have an idolatry of our ability to defend ourselves that is antithetical to the living God. When we can't make reasonable guidelines to protect society as a whole, did you follow how many mass shootings just followed after last Sunday morning's shooting uh, 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 message? 
There was one last night in Philadelphia. 14 people shot. We're having more than one a day. So what I'm trying to help you see here is this, that too often when we think of the world, we think of conservative versus liberal. It's the liberals that are in the world. No, folks, conservatives are fully in the world. Every bit as much as political liberals. In fact, James says the problem is the way that we come together to create protections and systems and values around the things that we love. Remember, starting with that origin thing. The world, in fact, will work to shape your thinking through ideologies and worldviews and through culture. We create cultures around the things that we want to protect and love and value, even if those things are ungodly. We have a gun culture as just an example. We have worldviews and ideologies like nationalism and conservatism, which is a political ideology, that answers gospel-like questions. And yet, so often we think these things are benign to our faith or in fact are supported by our faith when we have never even examined their weaknesses. So let me point out how Paul says this to the Roman church. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So let me ask you this. Does Fox News conform your mind? Yes. By the way, numerous independent studies show that Fox News is incredibly... and In fact, they, they've even said their primary news pieces, they now call them opinion pieces. Do you know what opinion pieces are designed to do? Shape your thinking. So I pick on Fox News because so often within the church, we've decided that it's the other side that's doing this. And yet it's not one side or the other. There's a brilliant book written by a Christian a political scientist, David Coises, Political Visions and Illusions. And basically in the book, he argues that every single political ideology and worldview from capitalism to conservatism to Marxism to nationalism to socialism, all of them are substitute gospel worldviews. They are against the worldview of the living God. And we are called to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. In other words, when we encounter the good news of Jesus, it should change the way we think about everything. So if we haven't stopped and said, what does my belief in the gospel, how does that change my opinion and perspective of what we should do with gun rights in my nation at my time, then maybe we're not applying wisdom. Don't assume the things you inherited and brought into your faith do not need to be transformed. In fact, make the opposite assumption. If I haven't yet processed something through the lens of the gospel, it's probably tainted by sin. 
Because that is the nature of the world. In fact, the world acts to specifically to corrupt our minds, our hearts, our values, and our actions. Sin loves company, and we want people to worship and value the things we worship and value to the point where we will use force to make them do it if we have to. James says this in James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. He says there, there is a true religion that is pure and undefiled before God. It's not tainted by the world. And he says it's this, <laughs> visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And he doesn't mean just stop by and say, as he's going to make very clear, hey, nice to see you, hope Jesus is taking care of you. <laughs> no, no, no. When he says visit, he means you go and meet those needs of the weak, the vulnerable, the disadvantaged. He says that religion that is pure is seeking to care for the weakest amongst us and ensures that it is to keep oneself unstained from the world. So what is it in your worldview that is tainted by the world and has not yet been processed through the gospel. We are called to be in the world, as Jesus said, but not of it, right? He hasn't taken us out of the world. He said, Father, I don't ask that you take my disciples out of the world, but I ask that you keep them from the evil one. And it's important we're going to come to this in just a second. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We are to be like Jesus with a radically transformed worldview. We must have a way of processing life and information and decisions and politics and all of the things that we do day in and day out that is utterly different than the world. Because worldly wisdom always leads to disorder and sin. James says this in James 3, 15 through 16. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. He says, there is a kind of wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. <laughs> Oof. Tied together. It's made up of the world's way of solving problems. And it's from demons. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will always be disorder and every vile practice. Desire flowing through worldviews leads to sinful behavior. Okay? Third origin, sin comes from the devil. <laughs> yes, from the beginning, he has been seeking to deceive and to devour and to destroy James says, resist the devil. Resist him. There is a fight to be had. You have an enemy who wants to destroy you. Peter will tell you this. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, you have an adversary, the devil, he's prowling around like a roaring lion, and he's seeking you to devour you, to eat you up. As Paul reminds the Ephesian church, life includes the reality of spiritual warfare. And I want to be so careful here. 
Because there are some people who, through a Christianized nationalism, are using spiritual warfare language to motivate the church here. And I think that is heinous. Okay? But there is a reality to a spiritual warfare that is ongoing around us. And as believers, we are to put on the whole armor of God, which, by the way, includes the gospel of peace. All right? If you want to hear anybody talk about spiritual warfare and they don't say, what's on your feet? It's the gospel of what? Peace. Not the gospel of anger. Get in my own way. What are your weapons? Not your AR-15, but the Word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And your shield is the shield of faith, right? Paul says, in this spiritual warfare, you put on your whole armor so that you can stand against who? Not your political opponents, the schemes of the devil. And they start where? Here and then in my worldview, right? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All right. It's probably as much as we can handle on the origin of sin here. Let's take a look at what the outcome of sin is. And and James is going to address this so clearly. He says, right away, when we give in to sin... There's relational conflict, right? Relational conflict. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, go back there. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you, and that's plural there, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This week... A 33-year-old man who could not have his 22-year-old former girlfriend pulled up his pickup outside their church while she's on her way to Bible study and murders her and her friend before he takes his own life. Why? Because he coveted and could not obtain, so he murdered (laughs) Right? We don't have to murder, but we murder people in our hearts with our words. We tear them down. We destroy them. Relational conflict is one of the outcomes of our unchecked sinful passions and spiritual formation by the world. Relational distance comes, right? We know this intuitively. In interpersonal ways, when I sin against somebody, there's this barrier between me and them that has to be overcome through confession and repentance and renewal of that relationship, right? Well, the same thing's true with God. Relational distance occurs in when we give in to our sin because we neither trust God nor are aligned with His will. James shows this in a couple of different ways, but I like this one. I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way. Look at James chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. In the midst of his discussion of sin... He says this, you do not have because you do not ask. Don't miss the connection. He hasn't moved on from talking about the effects of sin. Why wouldn't you ask God for good things? 
Think about it. If what you want isn't pleasing to God, if what you are desiring is shaped more by the world's values than gospel values, if what you desire to have happen in a particular situation isn't actually from God or you're not sure it's from God, or maybe you just, even though it might be a good thing, you just don't believe God is good. And God is kind. And God is capable. Do you see how all of that unbelief and sin shapes whether or not you go running to God? Because here's the thing. If you believe that God is infinitely good, infinitely great and capable of doing whatever He wants, and infinitely desiring to give you good things, why wouldn't you go to Him? We don't ask because sin has tainted our view of God. We ask and do not receive. Why? Because we ask wrongly outside of God's will to spend it on our passions. We come to God sometimes and we try to make our, you know, polish up our motivations when we ask Him for good things, but really what it is is just because we've got some desire to have some earthly glory, some earthly good, something that's not pleasing to God. Isaiah reminds us that our iniquities make a separation between us and our God, and our sins hide His face from us so that he doesn't hear. So there's relational conflict, there's relational distance, and then there's relational opposition. Opposition. James says this, he calls the church, notice it's the church he's speaking to, he's not talking about the world. Imagine a preacher standing up and saying to the church, and by the way, James is the head of the Jerusalem church. He is likely the first bishop over many churches. He has immense authority, and he says this, All you Christians, you're adulterers. You adulterous people. Why? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do you understand that every alignment that we make with an earthly worldview puts us in diametric opposition to a holy God, even if we think our intentions are good. Let me give you an example. In the last week, key, very significant, evangelical and Southern Baptist leaders have said, yes, yes, this sexual abuse crisis is terrible and tragic and lots of caveats in there. But you know, if we spend money addressing this and taking care of those people, well, we won't be able to send missionaries. Do you hear the evil? Under a framework justifying sinful neglect of those we have wounded, including the children of our missionaries and missionaries themselves, under the framework of him making the gospel most important, we've aligned ourselves with a worldview that is an enemy of God. 
Folks, that's heinous evil. We cannot make ourselves God's enemies. Because the outcome is always death. Death. Go back to James 1.15. Desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, right? Okay. And sin, when sin grows up, it's an all-consuming zombie that brings death into your life. Grown-up sin is death. And the Bible speaks of death, this kind of death, in at least three interrelated, interconnected ways. You can't really distinct, make them distinctive, but I want you to think about them in, in this way. There's punitive death. There's death that we get that's a righteous punishment. Sinners deserve to die for the wages of sin is death. We've offended a holy God before we did anything evil to any other human being. We offended a high and holy God. Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that in and of itself was sufficient to bring forth punitive death. There is a right and holy judge who will punish our sin with death. That's, that's a punishment. It's the death penalty. But it's not just that because it's also experiential death. This is the death that we experience while we are alive. Satan told a twisted, partial truth. Eve, if you eat of this, you will not die. And what he likely was getting her to believe was that she wouldn't experience the immediate effect of death. Now, God could have and should have potentially immediately killed Eve. But ever since then, the human race has been buying into the same thing. We buy into tiny micro-sins not believing that we will experience death. And God's saying, it's not just that I'm going to punish you with death. It's that when you partake of sin, you experience the way of death, not the way of life. Coming to me is the way of life. Depending on me is the way of life. Participating with me is the way of life. Everything else may seem right to you, but it is always a path to death. And so we experience micro-deaths constantly. We abuse our bodies through substances, and we experience a form of death. We abuse our bodies through sexual immorality, and some part of us dies inside. We experience death of relationships whenever we do that which is sinful in those relationships, right? So it's not just punitive death, it's experiential death, and it's spiritual death because we move from a category of being fully alive to now living, but living in death. We become the zombies. So Paul would write to the Ephesians this, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You move into a category of death. That's an outcome. And here's another one. This is why I had to include verse 16 in the reading from James 1 earlier. None of us believes what I just said. We're deceived. I bet, even while I was preaching these points, that the enemy, or your flesh, or 
the way you've been trained to think, rose up and said, yeah, but, dot, dot, dot. See, we're deceived. We don't look in the mirror correctly. Satan is a deceiver. The world will deceive you. And your flesh will lie to you. Jeremiah will say that the, the man inside the, the, the heart inside a man is desperately wicked, and none of us can understand it, right? Paul would write to Timothy and say the world will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, and Satan is the deceiver, it says in Revelation. So Paul, or James says, don't be deceived about the origin and outcome of sin. But, good news. If I were to finish here, we could all go home depressed. But sin has an opponent. Right? Sin has an opponent. And look how James unpacks this. It is so beautiful. It starts with a God that is jealous for you. Now remember, what's James' controlling analogy here? You and I have committed adultery. We've given our heart to our own desires, to the worldviews around us, and to Satan. Right? Remember, we commit adultery. But God, He's jealous for you. He's jealous for you. James says in James 4, 5, it, it, do you suppose it is to no purpose? The scripture says, he quotes scripture, he says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to indwell you. Once you are a child of the king, the God of the universe is going to come in rabid, jealous, raging pursuit of you. Wow. Whole book of Hosea, by the way, is all about this. He's pursuing you and me with a grace that is greater than our sin. You say, but I've done this. I've bought into this. I've believed that. I've deceived myself. You don't know, pastor, I've been doing this for 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, the way I think, the way I feel. Even when I don't want it, it comes bubbling outside of me what if I told you, in that moment, the orientation of God is not one less tiny, tiny drop less than a raging river of His grace that is going to come and flood over you? Because that is what Scripture says. So James says, you committed adultery. God is jealous for you. And he gives more grace. More grace. More grace. It says in Scripture, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, to the prodigal who will come home, to the wife who will return, to the husband that will confess, to the church that will own their sins. There is always more grace when we humble ourselves.
Paul would write to the Romans and say this, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. And that same grace will save you, it will redeem you, and change you. Those are interrelated concepts, but let me break them down for you using this passage that Paul wrote to Titus. By the way, if you ever want a great passage, just you want to practice memorizing something more than one verse, these four verses right here, really, really good. The grace of God has appeared. Picture this like the moment in the movie when the superhero shows up, when everything is darkest, when everything has gone completely wrong. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, all right? So God saves us from our sin, from our own desires, from the world, from Satan, training us. The the grace doesn't just save you, it trains you to do what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It trains you to live proactively, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while you are waiting for something. What are you waiting for? Christian, what are you waiting for? You're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself to redeem us. He takes all that past brokenness and he makes it into something beautiful to redeem all our lawlessness and to purify, to make us clean for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Man, don't think of grace as some passive thing. It's a dynamic river that wants to flood into every corner of your life. There is more energy and power in grace than all the nuclear reactors of the world and all the suns in in the universe. There is more power in the grace of God than there is in such an infinitesimal comparison to look at the power that is out there in all of the universe, all the energy. The energy of God is coming after you. David says, surely his goodness... And his mercy, his hesed, his divine love is pursuing me all the days of my life. He's chasing after you. So what do you do when you find out that there's this kind of love, this kind of grace, this kind of mercy that's, that's chasing after you? You stop running. <laughs> and you turn around. And you yield, you surrender, surrender to the love. And when you do, you win. You gain victory. So James says, James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. And the word submit means yield. Stop running, stop hiding, stop fighting. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Brothers and sisters, the devil is defeated. He is not winning. 
no matter how the world looks. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Yes, I get it. The war is still ongoing, but the, the, the key penultimate battle has already been won. These are just the actions of momentary terrorists awaiting the return of the full king. The devil is defeated. The world is overcome. John would say this, little children, little children, you are from God and you have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Do you see any exceptions in that? It's good news because I don't often feel this, right? But there are no exceptions there. Everyone who has been born again, who's come to Jesus in repentance and believed that He alone can atone for our sins, has been born anew, and you have already, it's past tense, overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, who is it that overcomes the world, except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So, remember the origin points of sin? Where were they? The devil, the world. We've already talked about two of them, but what was the first one? Yourself, right? Your own desires. What if the same grace washes your hearts clean, in fact, gives you a whole new heart, a new set of desires? Ezekiel 36, 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Oh, how sweet that is. Those idols that are deep inside my being, they're being taken away. And I, God says to you and me, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God wins over your desires. Now maybe today you don't know what to do with this. You don't know what to do. So let me give you this as we go to prayer. In a minute, we're going to go to the table, which is a great place to do these things. You can confess. God gives grace to the humble. Confess those things the Holy Spirit's spoken to you about in your heart, in your worldview, ways you've given in to what Satan wants. You can cry out and ask God for that grace or for a new relationship with Jesus Christ if you've never trusted in Him. If you've been running, hiding, fighting God in some area of your life, you can stop right now and just tell Him, I'm surrendering my life to you. Maybe a new, a fresh, the first time. I'm done running. 
I want to be swept up in the river of your grace. Or maybe you're struggling to believe this and you need to cry out and ask God, say, Father, I want to see this reality in my life today and this week. I'm not seeing the way I'm overcoming the world. I'm not seeing the forgiveness that you've given me and the new heart. I'm not seeing the defeat of Satan. And ask him to give you those new eyes to see it afresh and anew. Let's pray that way. Father God, we do stop right now with utter awe and thanksgiving at his grace that is greater than any of the origin points of sin. We confess that too often we have blamed others and looked outside ourselves. We have failed to see the way the world views have shaped us. And so, Lord, we come to you asking for grace, for renewal. We yield our lives to you, our will, our desires. We ask you to to indwell us and fill us up wash us, where we don't see these victories that you have promised, the overcoming of the world, the defeat of Satan, and the the transformation of our desires, we ask for you to do those works in such a visible way and give us the eyes to see it, that we might wonder and glory and worship you in all. You alone can do these things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.